0: again everybody and welcome to today's Scope of Practice podcast, the product of the Connecticut Certification Board. As we continue on with our fourth season of addressing anything and everything of interest to professionals in the substance use disorder prevention, treatment and recovery industry, we thank you for listening. When it comes to supervision, I consider myself really lucky. As a social work student, I had regularly scheduled supervision as part of my training, which challenged me in ways that made me uncomfortable, but safe. My first clinical job offered me both individual and group supervision, and when it was my turn to be the the supervisor, I learned from Dr. David Powell. Just recently on this podcast, I got to discuss supervision with one of the country's preeminent experts in Dr. Carol Fallender. As David Powell once said, although the content of supervision is certainly important, nothing matters more to counselors than the process of open professional sharing with a trusted clinical expert. Today, we'll address both. Our guest is a gentleman that I had the pleasure of meeting while we were both presenting at a conference at Orem, Utah, and after talking for just a few minutes, it was clear we had symmetry in our interests, and I do have to say it started with talking about the Harvard Whalers. He is knowledgeable, skilled, and passionate when supervision is the topic. Chaz Frank has a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from McKendree University and an MSW degree from St. Louis University. He received his clinical license in 2009 and has been practicing therapy full time since 2007. Since the beginning of, the career, of his career as a therapist, Chaz has worked with trauma and its long reaching effects. This work has included extensive work with all ages and all walks of life. Chaz specializes in psychodynamics, self compassion, and integrating Eastern thought and philosophy into the therapeutic process. He has participated in training with important figures in the field of therapy and psychology, such as Dr. Ira Chasnoff and Dr. Bruce Perry. Chas has presented on topics including, but not limited to, trauma, wisdom and self-compassion, mindfulness, self-care, transference and counter-transference, and early intervention and listening skills. Chas is also currently employed as a faculty member in the Master's in Social Work Program at his alma mater, Saint Louis U, and is the owner of a private practice, Light Source, in Belleville, Illinois. Charles, good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you, man. I'm glad to be here. This is exciting. So we had talked a little bit about supervision uh, in Utah and and how we viewed it. Like I said, there was some symmetry, but let's jump in with something that may resonate with some listeners and may surprise others. Can we talk about the prevalence of countertransference in our therapeutic interventions?
1: absolutely yeah i we did when we started talking about it i think the the overlap is that first question where countertransference at its core is something that we have to recognize as ubiquitous to the therapeutic process at, at all levels so if you're working with addiction mental health co-occurring inpatient outpatient the experience of the professional is a part of the process no matter what and and as a result uh, of uh, maybe educational stuff that I know we'll get into. But as a result of some of the influence of certain bodies and certain powers that be, a lot of people think countertransference is something that they're supposed to be eliminating in the process, that they shouldn't be having a reaction or they they shouldn't be having any kind of emotional response to the process going on in the room. Uh, and if they are, they're doing something wrong and they better eliminate it which that is especially difficult if you are in supervision because you're already bombarded with this world of, am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Am I doing it correctly? And so it is important to give language to countertransference. at its core is present in every therapeutic transaction. It is an important
0: part and a good part. It's not a bad part. It's not something to avoid. Yeah, and we've talked in the past and I've talked to other people saying, You know, countertransference just is. It is neither good nor bad. We make it so. And I think oftentimes if we're so afraid of making it bad, that's ultimately what we end up doing. Our clients, our patients don't see the real reaction uh, or real impact of what they're saying. And I think that's an important part of role modeling for them as well
1: absolutely the the counter transference piece it it also has to include uh, the awareness of it but also like the ability to maintain an authentic presence while kind of being self aware so if even if you think about something like rogerian approaches right so mm-hmm. call rogers right if you think about rogers rogers is talking about this unconditional positive regard and he's talking about authenticity which essentially is How can you know that uh, you as the client know that my regard for you won't change and I'm tasked with being authentic, which means I have to eliminate any potential like, you know, lack of accountability in the relationship or enabling, right? When I think a lot of people hear um, unconditional positive regard, they worry that there's some like enabling in that. When it's like, well, no, unconditional positive regard isn't effective if you can't stay authentically present as a professional. And if you don't know your countertransference, you don't know how you're emotionally reacting or how your inner life as a professional is reacting to the therapeutic process, then it's very hard for you to stay authentic.
0: And in a bigger picture, what are some of the basic implications of of this therapeutic omnipresence uh, of countertransference?
1: Well in the the bigger picture it gets into a lot of discussion of like the nuance of self disclosure which then immediately brings us into a well-bounded relationship and how to create safety. So to me all things are in the service of safety, right? As a therapist like all things are in the service of safety. We as humans especially as humans that have maybe been traumatized or, or hurt or have been in and out of the world of addictive behaviors, we can only operate insofar as we can feel safe. And so it's all in the service of safety. So if you think about something like countertransference, you think, um, to get into a little bit of the history of it, countertransference initially is this very high-end Freudian conceptualization that is strictly in response to the transference of the individual from their past. Over time, from kind of Carl Jung on down, we have been able to kind of expand that definition to just kind of understand that this is the natural interplay of relationship. You have a person, an identified client that is transferring some feelings onto the other person in the room, uh, the therapist in this example, and the therapist is going to have an inner reaction to that process. That's going to be there. So since we know it's going to be there, we have to utilize it. It's part of the self of the provider. And so utilizing it has to be in the service of safety. All right, so if you think about how to process counter how to say something about it, and again, this is still kind of big picture, you're always thinking, okay, like, how is this in the service of the relationship and creating that safety? Uh, if I'm going to say that I'm having a response, right, like maybe I'm going to share that I'm, I'm feeling distant from the story right now or I'm not feeling particularly connected. What's your response to our conversation today? You have to make sure that that is in a space where that person can hold that and experience it as part of your caring presence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you can't do that, if you are concerned that maybe sharing your own stuff is going to bombard uh, you have to back off. Or maybe you don't have enough self-awareness to realize that you're sharing and sharing and sharing, and it's because you're uncomfortable. You know, you as yeah. the provider are uncomfortable, and, and you're taking up too much space. And so I think it's all in the service of safety.
0: And uh, Speaking of safety and, and understanding and having some self-awareness of, of what's going on, is acceptance of that reality is that self-awareness or enough? Or do we as professionals have to go further than simply accepting that countertransference uh exists 24-7 in, in the yeah.
1: I, I do I love that question because I think acceptance is a big part of it, but this is where we kick in an idea like parallel process, which mm-hmm. is like, are is a clinician going to be able to accept this interplay if they're not receiving good supervision that is supportive of that acceptance? And so I think that acceptance is like, it's a good thing because it kind of normalizes the process, but then it it kind of like veers because we're going to have to accept it and then we're going to have to do more. Um, I have been a, a Buddhist for a long time. This is the idea of like skillful means. Mm. You know, they talk a lot in Buddhism about a skillful approach or skillful compassion. Um, so if you think about social work school, I, you know, I'll have conversation with students sometimes that say like, now that you're here, being kind and caring is good, but it's not enough. Like now you're building skill on top of that. So I would think the same thing here. We accept that transference and counter-transference is a natural feedback loop in a therapeutic relationship. And we have to accept that first. But then we start the process of where do we build skillful means of application?
0: And I think especially in the substance use disorder counseling world where you have a significant number of individuals who come to the field with their own experiences. Uh, there's a significant likelihood that they're going to be triggered with an uh, account of transference and source uh, aspect with what people say. And that self-awareness uh, and, and building skill is incredible. Incredibly important to to deal with it as a professional, for sure. I, I
1: one of the things that um, I, I just gave a a, a presentation on, uh, like the ethics of countertransference in addiction treatment at a at a facility here close to me. I'm I'm right by the St. Louis area, um, and and about half the room were recovery professionals, some kind of peer support or recovery specialist, and we were talking about the same thing. And one of the things I mentioned is think about your view of recovery, right? Like you're kind of, everybody's got our hard lines, right? But we're going to use addiction as an example here. If you're a person in recovery and you at your core believe sobriety is the answer, 12 steps is the fellowship, practicing a program, holding yourself accountable with radical honesty and giving back to others is the way to get your life in order. That is beautiful. I I love that. I'm not in recovery. Mm -hmm. I do like the 12 steps as a change model. I see that as really beautiful. But I was just kind of expressing the, the, the simplicity of if you see that as the way to do it, and now you're a professional that is going to run into a lot of people that don't agree with that same process, whenever you're working with a client that says, I don't want to do that 12 steps crap, there's too much God. Or I don't want to do this, or I think I can still moderate smoking weed, but I got to stop drinking. Every time you hear that, you as a professional are going to have an emotional Mm -hmm. response to that. And so you don't need to rid yourself of these core protective things that are keeping you safe and solid in your sense of self. But you do have to have a space where you're processing the emotional experience of hearing somebody say that the things you believe about the world are crap. And, you know, and and that is going to be like a meaningful process, because if you don't, if you think that you're just going to transcend that with your desire to help. Right. You're probably you're probably misguided. None of us are that Mm -hmm. none of us are levitating in and out of the room like none of us are that separate from our own emotional experience. And a lot of times why this is an important skillful thing is if an individual is tr- is telling you that these things that you're espousing or that maybe your employer is espousing of getting sober, maintaining sobriety, maintaining maybe 12 steps or something like that, if they're telling you that this is crap, that might also be their transference. They Absolutely. might consistently try to push people away with that knowledge. And your ability to check that part of yourself, hang in there and communicate safely That is going to be the, that's the work.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, that's the actual treatment. I don't, that's great that you have other evidence-based practices, use those, but that ability to feel that transference, check your own emotional response and not give them the response that they're used to. That is the work. That is yeah. the building
0: safety, and it brings me back to what we were talking about before we started recording DBT and the the non conditioned response. But it also, what you said, just kind of leans perfectly, segues perfectly into to the next question: is we recognize that that uh, self awareness uh, is is incredibly important, and when we look at self awareness and we we talk about uh, acceptance and efforts to. A, to address our our own issues and and concerns with counter transfers. Is that a form of self-care? Again, the buzzword of the time.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, there's... I like introducing the idea of self-care here for a couple of reasons. One is... I'm glad it's a buzzword because for the most part, a lot of us kind of came up in the idea of take care of yourself, but we're in the service first world, right? We're other-centered people. So it wasn't really used in any way other than a very surface-level thing. But I also love it because I try to explain to as many people as will listen that care of the self is a major player in how effective we are as providers. So this is checking in on your experience of self and and your comfort in the room and or your ability to show up. I talked to a therapist not too long ago, and we were talking evidence-based practices. And um, I have in the last year gotten training in, in brain spotting, which is kind of you know EMDR adjacent. Mm-hmm. And and so we were talking modalities and and their their role. And she said, at the end of the day. My presence is the most important thing that I bring into the room. And it was not a egocentric talk. It was whether or not I can show up and and hold this space and and really experience myself safely so that I can model that and ask the right questions and hold the right space. That's what I offer. And, And that is very, very dependent. On care of the self, <laughs> right? It is very, very dependent on are you within your limits? Are you within your comfortable ability to practice? I said from the jump, I my wife Holly, that she the met that was in Utah, mm-hmm. when after you and I met, I was like, listen, I'm gonna tell you right now, I like the name scope of practice. I am a I am a role clarity guy, you know? And <laughs> and and the more experience that I've had, the more I've realized that that scope of practice that ability to be like uh, this is not for me this particular presenting problem or or this this is not for me i need to be able to find a better fit for this person that is part of care of the self mm-hmm. that is me checking my experience when historically and i think a lot of new clinicians especially feel this pressure. Historically, I would have thought I need to just get out of the way and show up and help whoever. But I'm not great for whomever. Right. You know, and that that self-care is is what creates enough room for me internally to be like, I, I see that you have this issue going on. I know that there's some really good um, I'll use EMDR as an example. I don't I don't practice EMDR. Mm-hmm. I like EMDR, I'm just not certified in EMDR. Um, when I see that person that would really benefit from EMDR, I check my own experience of like, if I try to hang in and help, that's me crap. They could benefit from this. And I know a couple of amazing EMDR professionals that will always say, absolutely, Chaz, coming from you, get them in here, and and, and I can get them there. I would not be able to practice that awareness and apply that awareness if I wasn't taking care of self.
0: And I never uh, thought of self-care in that way. So that's a really interesting thing for me to kind of take in and think about, but it makes absolute perfect sense. Um, you know, hearing it for the first time. Um, in 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 my opinion, when I see and hear self care, the first thing that comes to mind is emotional intelligence. That mm. if we are emotionally intelligent, we are able to practice self care in session, instead of what we get marketed to us as a recovery vacation or I'm going to go to the spa, mm. which are all great things, but that's not the that's not really the blanket of 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 self care that we need i think emotional intelligence and i'm actually doing it and i've done it a couple times doing a presentation in a regional conference about emotional intelligence as self care oh uh, i love that for clinicians and it's really just preparing and we talk about simple things like if you know this client comes to you with a difficult presentation and you have an incredibly negative response to it why do you Mm-hmm. why are you not prepared for the possibility of a difficult presentation and thinking about having a a non-conditioned response so and so it's just new for people to hear uh, i do, i really like that
1: yeah i and i think too what's really important and and i you know hopefully i get to see that presentation in some form or fashion but what's really important is when you introduce an idea like emotional intelligence uh, you're also kind of bringing language in that i think it very much so resonates with a lot of providers you know like it, it is really hard as other centered professionals and and i you know like i probably oversimplify this language but we are in an other centered profession our primary role is to look at the needs of the people that we serve first Mm -hmm. and address them as they are, meeting them where they're at as best as we can within our scope of practice. And that other centered professional stance is not what your books and podcasts and presentations are based on. Because, you know, if you read like a leadership book, if you read a success-oriented self-help kind of book, a lot of those are written by other, they're written by self-centered professionals, right? So I don't mean self-centered in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It's just that Jeff Bezos is in a self-centered profession. He wants to get as much as he can get first, and then the customers of the world benefit, in quotes, um, from him having everything that he wants, right? He gets to be Mm self-centered. He is not an other-centered professional, right? Like the financial industry is a self-centered profession, meaning you as the the professional try to get, 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 be successful, be successful, be successful. And then it trickles down to other people, hopefully. We are other-centered. So it is not at all natural for us to be thinking of our experience First or second. I think for a lot of us, this is where self-care and emotional intelligence come in. For a lot of us, we end up in a position where we care about our clients first, then we care about our coworkers, then we care about our employer, and then we care about us. You know, like we check all of those Mm -hmm. other things, and this is this could get into wounded healer territory too, right? But we look out at the world and go, okay, every single person in every single corner of my life is okay for a minute, so I can uh, go grab a cup of coffee. I can go to the bathroom now. I can, you know, and (laughs) and so the emotional intelligence piece that you introduce, I think, is so special because there is that. Well, wait a second. I need to be in a position. where there is a little gap of stimulus and response, right? This is the mindfulness language of like, can we create a gap between stimulus and response? Well, I have to be present, aware, valuing my inner experience and tapping into emotional intelligence, which for most of us in the field is very available. We we are emotionally intelligent people. That's how you, you become successful and competent in our field.
0: When I yeah, you I know, started looking at how I was going to do the training and putting things together. It just kind of uh, uh, made sense to me. And when I look at it now, it's it's the bigger picture. if what we bring to the table and our inner experience is part of what is the most helpful, the therapeutic relationship, uh, our ability to be emotionally intelligent and manage our response um and, and continue to with, with unconditional positive regard but be true to ourselves i think the emotional it, it plays to the therapeutic relationship it, it all comes together um and i think it's unethical. for it, it it's it's really unethical to practice from a place of lack of emotional intelligence and I, most people don't come from that point so yeah <laughs> Supervision itself, let's jump into that. Supervision itself is really challenging. We know that. As a care of the person served, as well as the professional development of the individual provider, that kind of stuff falls under the locus of responsibility for a clinical supervisor. Um, so the issue needs to be, the issue of countertransference needs to be part of supervision. So, what hurdles exist to make this process uh, difficult to entertain?
1: I think, well, one thing is, I, I don't know how often a, a base level of transference and countertransference stuff is introduced at a graduate level. You know, like, I mean, it, sure, it's it's probably introduced, but um, I, I've supervised uh, quite a few social workers that, that come in, and when I ask them about just an experience with a difficult client, right, out of the gate, you know, you... You're you're a few months into your first job as a therapist or a clinical social worker before you go. I don't know what the problem is. I'm not really getting anywhere with this person, and it's like, oh well you you might not like them that much, right? You might be having a hard time like really liking this person, and you haven't really been given the language for like what does that mean? You know, like are you allowed to not like somebody? Are you allowed to have somebody come in and talk about things that just like bristle you a little bit? Um, and I don't think that graduate programs like need to step it up or in that way. I think it's like, oh, that's the role of supervision. And if a person comes in without that language, of course, this one on one supervisor relationship and group, we do a lot of group, too. Yep. Um is it is part of the role of supervision and and so i think what's difficult to implement is you as the supervisor have to be really tapped into that response right this is where your self awareness and and your kind of ego play comes into work because the the barriers sometimes are well, supervision is a lot of liability, right? It's a lot of absorbed liability. It is uh, also something where some people come into supervision and think that the primary role of the supervisor is gatekeeping for the field, right and and also helping and developing the clinical skills of another person is a is a really tough thing to do. and we really don't get taught a lot of how to do that, right? Like, I right. mean, You know, we're not all like basketball coaches that are trying to get somebody that are used to the technical aspects of a skill that can allow for this process. So I think part of the barrier is the, the preparation piece. And another part of the barrier is who is who's teaching the supervisors? Right. You know, who's teaching us? I don't you know, I didn't have a lot of formal education in how to be a clinical supervisor outside of I had a license. Mm hmm. You know, like, oh, you got a license; you could do clinical supervision. Would you like to? I, uh, I think so. I mean, a couple of years into that, I was really into it. But
0: well, I learned from David when it was almost too late.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I look at I um. There's a there's an author named uh, Louis Casalino. and and Casalino wrote two books. He wrote the Making of a Therapist and the Development of a Therapist, and. They're wonderful. They're really wonderful. And and what's really great about them is right to your question. It's addressing both. It's this discussion of like, what brings a person to the field? And what skills brings a person into this space? And then it is like, now you're in the room. And it's time to really like, step up your game. And understand these little things that are going on and and see these little responses that you're having, but seeing them in an emotionally intelligent way, which is curious and open and, and almost excited to have something come up. You know, if you're sitting with somebody and you realize that you're having a hard time connecting and your first move is what's wrong Right, like I, I'm, I must be doing something wrong, or even worse, I'm now irritated by this person who I can't connect to, and I, I'm watching the clock a little too close, and I'm sending these affective things that are really going to mess somebody's day up. Um, if you can instead meet that with, gosh, I'm sitting across from somebody and not connecting. I wonder what that's all about. This is interesting. Actually, I'm curious here. And supervision should be an open door for that, not a barrier of like, I, I don't want to tell my supervisor that I just sat with somebody and I was annoyed. I don't want to tell my supervisor that I got caught looking at my watch twice in one session. It's like, no, please tell your supervisor that. Right. And if you can't do that, tell your supervisor, I can't tell you that stuff. You know, like that's the safety piece.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the barriers exist, and I think that we have to be able to break through them as supervisors and the supervisees. And when we talk about that, and you talk about sometimes difficulty engaging with a client as a supervisor, we have to recognize that engagement of the supervisees is critical to the success of our relationship. You know, uh, we know that when a professional spends more time talking to or talking at a client uh, more rather than listening, engagement plummets. Is that a parallel process for us in the supervisory relationship?
1: I really, I really think so. I, I try to model as much as, as I can. And then the, the other supervisors at light source, um, cause we have some clinical and, and other supervision programs that we offer. And we work a lot with the model of Robert Taibbi, mm-hmm. uh, T-A-I-B-B-I. Um, he just he has a pretty simple like four it's not really four stages but it's almost like four roles where it's the idea that if supervision let's say it's the classic like two year 4000 hour kind of block of clinical supervision um essentially you start in kind of a teaching role and you should end in kind of a consultant role and that if you notice Pretty well into the relationship that you are still teaching a lot, right? You are still explaining a potential evidenced practice. You're explaining um, what a maybe like a interpersonal or or like interpersonal neurobiology kind of interplay, like a brain-wise therapist kind of thing. You're still teaching and teaching and teaching, eight months in, 10 months in, 12 months into supervision. Um there, there's probably an issue there you and 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 that is your awareness that's the parallel process as a supervisor you should be looking at well why am i why am i talking so much right the old weight right why why am i talking or whose agenda is this you know and and noticing that because yeah i mean if you're just going and going and going there's no way you're building relationship there's no way you're modeling holding space There's no way you're fostering curiosity or emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you probably do have some real disengagement. I think there have definitely been times in in my career as a supervisor, especially with some group supervision, where if you were to really, really press the people in the room about what was going on, you would have probably been told, um, we're just learning a little bit from Chaz's stories. Right. Like there would have definitely been times where I took up way too much space. I said way too much. I let somebody set me up with a situation that they had going on. And then I turned it into a diatribe of something parallel that I had go on some time. And if they're lucky, there's some knowledge in there. But really, it's just me taking up too much space. And at that time. I did not have or or do a good enough job of seeking out the mechanisms to hold myself accountable as a supervisor. Like, I'm messing that up.
0: Well, interesting, because, you know, the existence of countertransference in all therapeutic event, uh, interventions, we've talked about that. It's, it's omnipresent. It's also evident in the parallel process of supervision, which it's not a part of basic supervision training. If anyone gets that. So it's considered a higher level level skill, but it really can't be. It has to be a basic level skill because it's just so it's there. So do we as a field really need to take a good look at how we're training supervisors?
1: I I think so. I think that where. Where it slips off a lot of times is that it's it's like any kind of ethics discussion where. You should also be building curiosity around ethics, right? You should also know like what kind of ethicist you are as a professional, what informs a lot of your decisions, even as a moral individual, um, and, and have that kind of self-awareness. But the other piece of training supervisors would be this discussion of, of mentorship and role modeling and and, like we just said, developing, where... We're real heavy on the gatekeeping, the the ethics from a don't make a mistake that's going to get us in trouble. Mm-hmm. We're real heavy on that stuff. And it's not that we shouldn't be. I think all of us have a a reasonable or even at times unreasonable fear of getting in trouble or making a mistake. As a matter of fact, a lot of times people that don't have that fear are the people to be a little worried about. But as a result, we have this we have a a top heavy. Uh, development of supervision, right, ethics, protocol, policy, and then the secondary piece, creating safety for a supervisee, uh, understanding how to develop somebody's skills, uh, the parallel process of a strength-based approach to supervision, the way we have a strength-based approach to social work, those are very nuanced skills that we could call basic and we could make them ubiquitous, But we'd have to figure out where to make room in all the kind of like moralizing and ethics kind of discussion. I've been in uh, a lot of uh, supervision training that was really, really heavy on painting the supervisees as kind of a dangerous commodity without a lot of competence. And that to me is such a miss. You know, it's such a miss to sit in a room with a new clinician who has a relevant education that, that you as a supervisor maybe don't have anymore. Who knows when you mm-hmm. graduated from grad school? So they have a new relevant education. They are incredibly excited to be in the field. And if you sit across the room with the worry that this individual is inexperienced, not competent, very young, and going to potentially cause you trouble on your license, you will not be able to get out of your own way and develop that claim.
0: Absolutely not, right. And I agree with the whole point of you've got somebody who's excited, who's motivated. Why not use that motivation positively and build a relationship with them and help them develop relationships with their clients and their own personal development? One thing that I don't see a lot of and I'd like to see more of is kind of to piggyback on that last question, are we training clinicians to be good supervisees? Mm. Are they getting that information?
1: I, my, I, and I have to call this anecdotal. I don't know anything to back this up besides my own experience. Um, my experience is, is to say no to that because not because they're unprepared about what to bring into the room or what supervision looks like. That's part of the informed consent of right. super. Let me explain to you as the supervisor, what this looks like and, and, and what I hope you get from it. But I do run into a lot of people who really have not been told what supervision would be outside of the thing they need to get licensed. And so it's not that they are coming in with like something that they should know more of, like they should have done a better job understanding. They're they're coming in and never having anyone tell them that a supervision a supervisory relationship can be supportive mentoring and safe and developmental they have really only been taught the discussion of kind of a means to an end right and so there's there is a lot of uh, like almost like unlearning not just educating going on there is a lot of like no, no no i don't want you to think that this is just like another boss that you have to have for two years and then you can go practice independently. I I want this to be. I don't. I don't run into a lot of people initially starting supervision that feel that they could in any way utilize the relationship. Right? Like they they don't know. I'm showing up too. Mm-hmm. You know. That's where we have a. You know our our supervision contract that we use is mostly a, a document that really hammers home the shared accountability of this process just like a therapeutic relationship. Right. Like, mm-hmm. so I do think that there are things that could be done uh, to help people understand that supervision is an asset for them rather than another person that they have to make sure signs on a dotted line for them.
0: And I think so, something that's often missing is as a supervisee, what are, what are my rights and responsibilities and that's part of the supervision contract, but you can come in as a supervisee with an agenda. You have a right to have your questions answered, your opinions heard and get, get from supervision what you need. Um, yeah, and you know, and I think that that's often lacking because they come in from a place of, oh, I've got to respond. This is somebody that's got to you know, watch over me. I don't want to do anything stupid. I don't want to say anything wrong. Um, instead of saying having the right to be wrong, yes. uh, you know, in in, in Bull Durham, Ash Davis says, he's just your dad. He's as full of shit as anybody. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I think that, that we as supervisees should be told that, hey, I'm going to be. I don't know everything. I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to work things out with you and rely on your skill and training and intuition to get to the best answer here. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's lacking a little bit. Student, You get it as a student, but you don't necessarily understand why because it's not presented it, to you directly. It is a bit of parallel process in
1: that the field, right? So like, I again, I, I'm not really particularly being... The critical of the field, right? Like I, I love my job and I love the field, and I'm talking to you because I love it so much. Like this is this is it. But I do think that this parallel process of we want people to empower safety as clinicians, mm-hmm. and and we as a field then should be empowering safety uh, for the supervisees, and and it's such a great point to to mention, like. No, you you're allowed to bring an agenda in. You know, I I do see supervisors that talk a lot about you know that that are going to get too caught up in kids these days kind of discussion and this uh, how am I supposed to handle this supervisee that dresses a certain way and it's like oh man you're in the weeds like you can't you can't just live there with this this person isn't seeing enough clients and I don't think they should dress so casually. Like there's nowhere where like, that is going to be something that is just going to resonate so heavy with a supervisee that they're ready to jump in there with you. That is where you are teaching them that all you care about is whether or not they are wearing professional shoes and whether or not they are doing things in this kind of weird protocol that you've determined and moralized.
0: You're not developing them in any kind of emotional way. I was incredibly fortunate as a student because I got to do group with my clinical supervisor and that bastard did me in so good. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I don't hold a grudge, uh, but I hold a grudge. Right. He would, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to speak on content only process because he really, really wanted me to understand that. So he would set, we had a group that was really doing pretty well. They knew each other and, so, uh, he would set me up for the fall and then sit back and watch me swim against the tide. And then we would, you know, and then we we talk about it and when he finally would say, look, I'm, I want you to learn. I'm not going to let you get in a really bad spot, but I'm going to make you twist in your seat a little bit mm-hmm. and I'm right. And I'm not going to bail you out. But yeah. I can be there when I realized what he was doing after, you know, uh, after my own transference issues with him, sure. <laughs> I was like, thank you. So you taught me more than – you taught me a lot about myself. Um, and it yeah. was – I thought he was crazy, but he it was absolutely brilliant. So in utero, he would see what I was doing, and then he wouldn't tell me what he saw until I tell, told him in supervision what I felt about it and what I saw and, and the whole thing. Uh, and it, I was so lucky.
1: Yeah. Um, well, because – that introspective muscle is that's a skill. Yeah. And and the, the idea of, and this is a very natural part of coming from like high education into applying in application, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that's a very tough transition in all forms and fashions. But one of the things is like I don't really want somebody that I'm supervising to be re- reflecting in the name of getting it correct right? Because we, we're in an abstract field in, in most ways. So the the correct answers are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want somebody to be introspective and reflective and self-aware in the name of being right. I, I, w- I want somebody to be identifying the ways that they access reflective skills, which is emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I want somebody to learn their process of reflection more than I want somebody to come in with some brilliant light bulb. You know, like those brilliant light bulbs, a lot of times they serve us, the professionals. We're the ones that love these awakening moments. And we forget that every time a client has some really big awakening insight, it just becomes folded into the therapeutic process. It's not done right it's like oh good now i have this insight and that insight becomes part of what we talk about every time i see you and supervision should be the same way you develop a skill but then it just gets folded into yeah. your development it becomes the language that you use in supervision it's it, it becomes this this kind of uh, this process that somebody then can access
0: and i think the most valuable thing i ever did in group was point out to somebody that i recognized the reaction that they had when somebody else was speaking mm. hey i noticed this and maybe it was i had something in my eye and i'm way off right. base, or maybe it was yeah i didn't i don't really agree or it's just it, the simple thing so uh it is as, as much as it was on the baseline of the way he did it was such higher order sure i have no idea i was just clueless and scared
1: I'd say yeah, I mean I think we all we all stay there for most of our careers but I I had um I I worked in community mental health for 13 years and I the last group supervision that I ran uh, there were there were five people in the group and all of them have are incredible and and have continued to just grow and grow and grow in their careers um and you had these five people in the room and the best part about it is at a certain point, you didn't even need me in the room, right? You know, they know one another, they can safely ask questions, they can very safely point out, well, you know, a lot of times when somebody does A, B, and C, it really seems to make you anxious. And, oh, well, this is just like that client you talked about a few months ago that said this, and it really got you upset because you thought you were making a mistake. And to just kind of watch that unfold and to remind myself, this is unfolding because they are developing their their inner experience in real time. It has nothing to do with me. I I set up enough chairs in the room and said, we're going to do this Fridays at 10. And, And that was about as much as they needed me because they all pushed into that process. They were all safe enough to think about their own inner experience. And and that was beautiful because I know that oof, they're doing this in the room,
0: too. Yeah, it's, that, it, it's the group development process for group supervision that they go through all the old, the, the, as the old Boston University model of group development. The, the, uh, Absolutely. And then they're at that working stage, and it's okay. just an amazing thing to see. That's so cool. So here's a million-dollar question. What do we as supervisors need to do with the transference that we experience during our sessions with supervisees?
1: It's it, it is similarly the kind of like ubiquitous piece because there should be and and I, I try to teach on this as much as I can. This is a close relationship, you know. This is a close relationship. This should be you. You want this to be the kind of relationship where a uh, a person is able to fondly recall your presence in their development through the rest of their career. Not an ego trip, just you want somebody to know I was exposed to the kind of role model that reminded me why I wanted to be in the field. Mm -hmm. And in that vein, the the counter-transference a lot of times that you have to check is, is the how much space are you taking up? Are you able to share your real-time experience of what somebody has going on? are you also able to share when you really do feel like this person is unbelievably talented, right? There is a vein of stoicism that we profess in, in a supervisory way that I think then limits our access to our own kind of counter-transference as a supervisor. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I think supervisors don't want to be like, damn, you're good, right? We're we're afraid of, of kind of really like propping somebody up in some like unprofessional way when it's like, man, I, I have sat with supervisees as they break a case down and as they ask questions and I can't help but be like, whoo, you are a killer. <laughs> like, man, I am so glad to be a part of this right now. And, and we wanna do that with clients too. Like I very frequently am going to be excited, like, oh, we're getting in there. This is real. I like this. And so knowing those responses in the same way that you would you may have a response that somebody is not really handling a situation in in a way that initially shows up as like the the quote unquote correct way or yep. or the 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 most clinically appropriate way you need to be able to ask yourself is that because you are very set in the way that you handle things? Or is that because you are being informed by the field and it's time to
0: push? Self-awareness doesn't go away just because we get promoted to supervisor. Yeah.
1: And, and I I definitely think, you know, it's, it's one of those... Uh, you know we have been having some conversations the other supervisors and and I at, at lightsource about like this developmental piece of you know having clinicians that work in a in a community setting that are very hesitant to go into client homes um and you know and things like that where we come from a world where we all did a lot of home visits i was in the community for years and years um and we're trying to make sure that we get out of the way because we notice right away that we're like, you, you need to go into client homes. It's part of meeting people where they're at. It's part of the community. It's part, And it's not that we're wrong, but we know that our initial response to that is, is ours. We are having a reaction of, well, we went into the homes and going into the homes is one of the best ways to go. Okay, that may be, there may be truth there. Or that may be still an important part of the field, but we have to sit back and see, Are we going to give feedback because that is actually an important part of the process? Or are we giving feedback because we're doing some I walk to school uphill both ways in the snow Mm -hmm. kind of experiential thing? That's our response. Now, I'm very fortunate to have this team of supervisors that we sit with and go, "Um, boy, I'm really feeling some sort of way when somebody says they don't want to go into clients' homes. Like, is that me? I think that's me. I think that's the supervisor being an old <laughs> fuddy-duddy and not just asking more questions and, and building some safety. And so, you know, we we have to realize our own stuff as it comes up in real time.
0: And I think it's okay to get called on our stuff, even by supervisees. That makes you laugh because you'd uphill both ways. I got that story from my grandfather. I'm like, <laughs> dude, you lived in Cleveland. It's not a hill in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> you, you run a marathon in Cleveland. Maybe and not the snow, trying, you know. <laughs> Try another one. But I also think we need to get called out, make it safe enough for those that we supervise, to say, hey, I'm not sure where you're coming from on this. Yeah. I don't understand your response.
1: Yeah. And if I, you I, can't
0: – sorry, go ahead. Go, go 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 ahead. No, if you
1: can't that's, – that's one of the biggest barriers in a lot of the supervisory discussions is – how to get a relationship that, that is strong enough for both pers- both people to hold one another accountable. It's the same thing we talk about in therapy, right? I do tell clients, I want this to be a strong enough relationship for you to say, Chaz, I don't think you're hitting it here. I don't think this is right. I think you just, I think you missed it. I think you seem distracted. I think you seem, you know, busy today. You know, like I sometimes will have clients be like, oh, I know you're really busy um i don't like that that's affective right it might it might be colloquial of like oh i know you're a busy guy but it's also oh you should have a strong enough relationship with me to tell me to show up yeah and and i think that supervision should be the parallel process of that that the people in supervision should be able to say well hey man you're 10 minutes
0: late every time we meet oh huge yeah? Uh, do as i say not as i do that that's yeah. i've yeah. got just just one more thing is there anything that you'd like to add anything we missed
1: i will say i'm i'm very glad i think we hit most of the points that i really care about every day but one thing that really i would say two things that really matter to me one is i i have become more and more certain that like continued mentorship and supervision through your career is a very important thing. Absolutely. That as a professional, uh, you probably ought to spend time talking about your professional experience with a respected and trusted other. Um I do think that is beyond important. You you ought to be talking about it. You ought to be talking about your inner experience. I do think it should probably be like a formal part of your professional life, some kind of reflective supervision. We have a program at Lightsource that we call Beyond Supervision for people that either don't need clinical supervision or are already licensed. Um, You know, we meet with people from all over providing that. Um, And that's been really good. And and the other thing is really empowering people that are starting clinical supervision uh, as supervisees. to to search out a relationship the same way that we tell clients to just keep looking until you find a good fit. You know, like I think that an empowering thing that we miss sometimes is, no, 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 supervision is important. It is two years long, and you as a supervisee are allowed to say, I need this to be a good fit for the developmental process that I'm looking for as a professional. And, and in, you know, like it's just not really – I don't know that it's frequently empowered because, you know, you get a job and they say, hey, we do supervision here and Chaz is the supervisor. Um, okay, and if I don't like Chaz, is not really a question that's asked, right? It's just like Chaz meets with everybody in supervision Thursdays at 3, so you can get supervised by Chaz. Mm-hmm. And the question of, and if I meet there for a few weeks and it's not really my vibe, what are my other options, is just not – Discussed, and I really want to make sure that people know. Like, seek out mentorship. Give yourself permission to to find the kind of individual that you want to be modeling for you for a while, because it's an important relationship. And if it goes well, it's probably a relationship that lasts
0: the rest of your career. Right? Yeah, and I think that professional relationships that we have be- help us develop throughout our career because everybody has a different perspective but if you feel safe with someone that you know you can bounce ideas off ask questions i think it's really important for that to be ongoing and from my perspective and i don't know if this is just me and it's possible i think it's an ethical imperative that we continue to do that i do too yeah i i do
1: feel that it The self-awareness piece, the development piece, the accountability of processing your experience as a professional, this is how you show up. And this is how you connect to an ethical practice is through your own emotional intelligence.
0: That's a great way to finish. I appreciate you. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, Glad to talk to you again. Um, and, uh, for everybody that listens, I hope you enjoyed it today. And again, I want to thank Chaz for his time. Any last words before we go?
1: No, I really appreciate it. Everybody, uh, go find your good supervisors and your mentors and your role models and your wizards on high that, you know, you want to really develop you. And, uh, I, I look forward to hearing all those stories.
0: So I'm here for it. Thanks again. And to everybody else, we'll catch you next time.